Hi everybody, Thursday, 1st August. This week, I want to do a little bit of a deep dive into the trade deficit, why I think it's a distorted number, and how customs valuation rules help unlock the secrets to understanding it. But first, let's do a bit of a roundup on trade news. The China-US trade negotiations in Shanghai and what may have come out of it. The, the increased possibility of a no-deal Brexit, and what does that mean? The US policy paper on the developing country status at the WTO. The Japan-Korea trade dispute and the exclusion process in China to exclude U.S. origin items from China's retaliatory duty in the ongoing trade dispute. Let's get into it. Okay, on Wednesday, 31st July, the trade negotiations came to an end after less than a full day. So U.S. Trade Representative uh, Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin departed Shanghai, and as many of you may have already may already know, there was no deal, not even any indication of progress for a deal. Um, the negotiations were really marred apparently by some Trump, some tr tweets from President Trump, which called into question the sincerity of of China's promises to buy more agricultural goods and the realities of whether or not more agricultural exports went from the U.S. to China uh, in the intervening months when, when that had become a, a possible point of compromise between the sides. And so the next meeting will be in September, and we really don't have any apparent progress in the negotiations. Um, you know, there's, there are some new players added uh, from the China side in addition to Liu He, um, and it's, it, it is believed that those um, new uh, uh, negotiators from the China side may in fact um, push a, a more difficult or harder line position. From the China press, uh, there's a lot of publication about whether or not China will agree to any compromise of its core principles, which of course it says it won't. And on the U.S. side, uh, President Trump has reiterated the fact that any solution or resolution lies with him and him alone, trying to uh, assuage any, any idea that, that China may be looking to go past uh, President Trump to the opinions of the people or even to, to delay the ongoing negotiations until the election next year. Um, it appears that uh, we are further and further away from a resolution, unfortunately. <clears throat> so the second piece of news I just want to go over is uh, Boris Johnson, the new UK Prime Minister. Um, he's basically stated that the, a, a deal with respect to Brexit is in the EU's hands and that he's prepared for a no-deal Brexit, uh, as is the UK economy. Um, you know, what does this really mean for us in trade space? Well, uh, the, you know, the United Kingdom is a party to the same free trade agreements uh, as the European Union by nature of its membership in the European Union. So once a no-deal Brexit occurs and the United Kingdom uh, doesn't have any deal with respect to remaining in the customs union of, of Europe, uh, then potentially UK manufacturers like Rolls-Royce or uh, 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 Land Rover, Jaguar Land Rover, they may lose access to the, the free trade agreements that they now benefit from uh, by nature of their membership in the European Union. So sales of automotive parts or, or complete vehicles or even aircraft parts that go elsewhere uh, in the world um, will now attach duties to them, whereas before they may have been duty-free. Um, this obviously is a significant impact. The other thing I think that's important to note is the need for 
import declarations. So it's just a very practical consideration of requiring import declarations on every import now coming into the UK from Europe. Um, the, any of you who've been following the news carefully may know that the, the computer system that HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, uses cannot at all handle the estimated daily import declaration volume that would come following any no-deal Brexit or where the UK is completely outside of the customs union uh, of Europe. And so, I, I, you know, I guess from a trade perspective, I might take a bit of a different tact than uh, Prime Minister Johnson on that, on that issue of whether or not the UK is prepared for a no-deal Brexit, but we seem to be closer to that now than we were under Theresa May. So the next piece of news I think that's interesting is uh, the U.S. policy paper on developing country status in the World Trade Organization. And this is interesting because, uh, you know, China is the world's second largest economy, uh, obviously the most populous country in the world, and it self-classifies uh, as a developing country for the purposes of the WTO. And what that means is that it has certain procedural relaxations on disputes that it may face at the WTO against other countries. It also means that it doesn't have to take on the, the, the duty eliminations or the market access provisions that the WTO membership would otherwise require. So the U.S. has basically stated that the WTO must alter its process for determining or how to, to classify country, member countries as developed or developing countries for the purposes of the WTO. What's interesting is since the creation of the WTO, they've never been able to or haven't uh, amended the bylaws or amended the charter under which the members have joined. So what President Trump is asking is for something potentially the WTO is not capable of doing. And his threat is to work around the WTO. I'm going to mention that in a second with respect to Japan and Korea. But, but we really are seeing the erosion of the WTO as far as serving an important role in arbitrating or re resolving national disputes on trade issues. And so we may be quickly getting to a post-WTO trading environment, um, which you know I think would be a lot of uncertainty and potentially a lot more bilateral trade action like we've been seeing. And so with that, let's get into the next point I want to talk about, the Japan-Korea trade dispute. Some of you may know that back uh, in the beginning of July, uh, Japan's METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, um, issued a notice removing South Korea from its so-called white list for certain products. And that means that certain chemicals used in the semiconductor production process now require individual export licenses when shipped out of Japan. And this is extremely significant because Japan remains the key supplier of some of these key chemicals that are used in semiconductor production. And now that individual export licenses are required, this may create a, a huge supply chain bottleneck and, and could even disrupt the Korean, the South Korean semiconductor uh, and high-tech production operations, which are substantial. And this really all comes out of a dispute that goes back to World War II and, and private rights of action for individuals who suffered injury or harm as a result of Japanese military action in Korea. Korea and Japan had a bilateral treatment, a bilateral treaty to resolve this issue, which Japan, in Japan's view, resolved it uh, from any source. Um, of course, Korea's interpretation and the courts in Korea have allowed private rights of action with the interpretation that the treaty between South Korea and Japan was simply to resolve national disputes between 
nation state to nation state, and it did, it did not address individual rights of action against Japan to, to claim redress for those injuries or that harm. And so in retaliation for that, Japan has now imposed this new export licensing requirement and so really following on the, the, the heels of, of Trump's strong unilateral trade action, uh, Japan has sort of followed suit and, and put in place this export licensing requirement for these key chemical inputs for semiconductors. And so further to my previous point on the U.S. policy position paper to the WTO, this is yet another attack on the WTO system where we have major trading parties, uh, also member states of the WTO taking unilateral action uh, in pursuit of what they believe to be their strong core national interests. And so, you know, keep this in mind. This is really going to be, start becoming the norm when, when uh, you know, Trump's trade actions are, are uh, they, they will continue and other countries may follow in suit. And then finally is um, early next month in September, the second batch of exclusion process uh, period will open in China uh, uh, for um, interested parties who are affected by the retaliatory duties against U.S. origin imports into China in the ongoing U.S.-China trade dispute can file their applications for an exclusion online. Um, China Ministry of Commerce and Customs is looking at information like um, you know, the size of the import volumes, the values, uh, the, the production processes that depend upon these U.S. Uh, inputs, perhaps, the economic impact and, and things of that nature. Um, and so, you know, watch that space and perhaps there'll be more exclusion requests issued by China. Um, I'm going to try to put together the links for all of this information, which I have. I will try to put them in the show notes. If you're interested, please go check those links. Um, if if I, I'm not able to successfully link, I'm new to this, sorry about that, um, feel free to send me an email. My email is in the show description. You can send me an email, and I'm happy to shoot these links back to you. You can take a look at METI in Japan's notifications, for instance, or the White House's policy paper on developing country status, uh, things of that nature. Uh, and so, with our news update out of the way, I'm going to do not a deep, deep dive, but a bit of a deep dive into the trade deficit and why I think it doesn't matter. Uh, coming up next. Trade deficits. We hear this everywhere. President Trump really focuses a lot on trade deficits and what he perceives to be taking advantage of America. So where you are selling more goods to America than you're buying from America. And in, in President Trump's estimation, and in actually many of the politicians' estimation in the U.S. and many of his policy advisors, this trade imbalance is intolerable and must be rectified. And it's on that basis he's gone after China. He's now put threats on potentially Vietnam um, and, and, uh, and India, for sure, as well. And so the question really is, what are we measuring when we talk about a trade deficit? And I think that's what's important to understand. When we are evaluating a trade deficit or those statistics, those statistics are captured from U.S. Customs Declaration. So we're, if we're evaluating a trade deficit by value, the value that's being compared to the value of U.S. exports is the import valuation declared upon arrival into the United States by U.S. importers. And this value 
is really a specific legal definition. It is a transaction value, which means it's the price paid or payable on the sale for export to the United States. And there are certain additions that are required, for example, certain trademark royalties that, that may have to be payable uh, to the seller or to a related party to the seller. Or there are also, more importantly for this discussion, exclusions from that valuation. And so certain items that do not need to be added to the, the value. And so the question then remains, what exactly are we measuring when we're measuring the value of imports into the United States? And is that value relevant with respect to determining whether or not a trade deficit is real or if it's as extensive as it seems on the surface? Picture in your mind, if you will, a, a drawing of a, of a smile. So, you know, a smile basically like a big, huge U-shape. On the left-hand side of the smile is a line that goes up vertically. On the right-hand side of the smile, is, again, the, the, the smile goes up vertically. In the middle of the smile, the curve goes down at the bottom. Let this smile curve represent the value chain or the international supply chain for any particular product. It could be wearing apparel or high-tech merchandise. But let this smile roughly represent what the, the global supply chain looks like with respect to the value add. So on the left-hand side of the smile, where the line goes up vertically, is really some high value add activities. We've got product development and R&D, scientific research, brand design, maybe it's wearing apparel design, um, you know, things of that nature, the real product development. This is where the, the intellectual property or the technologies or the, the re real significant value is being created here when we're developing products. Um, High-tech companies that operate out of the U.S., um, you know, this is where most of the value that they create is happening. It's maybe happening at their offices in California. Uh, you know, that maybe it's a mobile phone company, the mobile phone designs, the software, all of that is coming out of their California headquarters, for example. And this is that left-hand side of the smile. The right-hand side of the smile, on the, you know, the other end of also significant value add. We have here activities like sales and marketing, professional services like law and accounting. We have all kinds of high value add activities that are happening on the far right side of our smile or our big huge U-shape. And so that, you know, now you know that the, the, the two vertical ends or the upsides of the smile on the left and the right, they represent increased value add or high value in the global supply chain. The bottom of the smile, the lowest proportion of the value add is represented by manufacturing, assembly, basic contract manufacturing. And when we're looking at many U.S. imports, especially branded items or highly designed or high-tech items, th it's this manufacturing process or assembly process that's outsourced to third parties. These manufacturers, and whether they be in China or Vietnam or Thailand, they don't own the brands. They don't own the designs. They're simply following the instructions on assembly or manufacture given to them by the brand owner or the product developer. And that is therefore the smallest value add in the supply chain. And so how does that relate to the import value and the trade deficit? I'll get to that in just a second. So when a company makes import into the United States and they're declaring the value, 
again, they're declaring the transaction value. So in my example on contract manufacturing, the U.S. importer is now going to be declaring the value or the, of the transaction, what they pay to that contract manufacturer, in my example, that did the assembly or outsourced contract manufacturing of the product that was designed and developed in the United States. Great. But we all know that that may not include the total value of the product because we just described earlier in our description of the smile curve that product development, R&D, the brand design and trademarks, they may be owned by a party who isn't the contract manufacturer. In fact, they're very likely not to be owned by the contract manufacturer. So that price paid to the contract manufacturer might have to be adjusted. And so if the product development, R&D, the brand, the patents and trademarks, things of that nature are owned by uh, a third party or related party to the contract manufacturer, we may have to add an amount to represent the trademark royalties or technology license fees that are applicable to that product. If, however, the U.S. importer performed these functions within the United States, then that value, that added value before the contract manufacturing would not have to be added to the import value. And conceptually, it's equivalent to U.S. value, U.S. components returning to the U.S., which don't have to be added to the declared or dutiable value of the import. And this is significant because this is a huge portion of the value of, of let's, let's take branded wearing apparel as an example. A pair of, of high fashion brand jeans that may be designed in the United States with a U.S.-owned trademark is sent over to China to be cut and sewn and shipped back to the United States. Upon importation, the importer, the designer brand jeans company, is simply reporting the value that they paid to the contract manufacturer, and that's completely legitimate and legal. The, all the other value of what the real jeans are worth with the brand and the, and the design elements to the jeans, that doesn't have to be added to the transaction value. And that really could be 300% increase over the basic material and labor costs that come from the contract manufacturer overseas. This, disparate, this separation in value between the total value add with IP uh, and, and licensing uh, uh, product development value incorporated and just the simple assembly and manufacturing value, this distinction is even more extreme when we're looking at high-tech products uh, like, like mobile phones or, or, or laptops or computers. And so what's coming back into the United States uh, is, is being added to this so-called trade deficit number. And so we are accumulating, you know, albeit low value add, we're accumulating value of imports from contract manufacturers overseas. But what's not being counted is the substantial portion of the ultimate market value of these products that's developed and retained here in the United States. And that's not even to discuss the high value add items that happen on the right side of our smile curve, the post importation, the post sale activities around accounting and law and sales and marketing and corporate executive management. And so when we're really looking at the total value add in the global supply chain, the contract manufacturing is relatively minor compared to the huge value contributed to the total market value of the product being sold in the United States. And for the vast majority of the products that we're talking about, particularly consumer products, that value is retained in America. And so when we talk about a trade deficit, we're not 
properly accounting for that value that's created in America and retained in America, in my example here with the US-China trade war. And so we're, we aren't really honestly capturing a, a true trade deficit because we're not offsetting the small contract manufacturing value from the total product market value of the import coming back into the United States. And unless we can do that, discussions around the trade deficit are simply distorted, uh, they're not clear, or worse yet, if you're cynical, um, like some people might be, it could just be an intentional political distortion of the conversation to really focus on what's happening overseas versus what's happening in America um, in an effort to either win votes or, um, or popularity. Um, and so uh, hopefully that clarifies a little bit about what we talk about when we talk about a trade deficit. It's not capturing the full value. It's simply capturing the activities that happened outside of America. And on a complete consumer good, that may be relatively minor compared to all the activities that go into building up the value of that consumer good for the retail market in America. Okay, that's it. Hopefully you found the trade news roundup useful. Um, this is gonna be the format that I try to follow going forward. Um, we had a couple of unique episodes this week, uh, or I, sorry, not we, I keep saying we, it's just me. <laughs> um, I had a couple of unique episodes this week, um, mostly because of the, the Hong Kong protests, which I think are important for people to understand. Um, and also the, the U.S.-China trade negotiations, you know, reinitiating um, in Shanghai earlier this week. But ordinarily, we're just going to be doing, I'm just going to be doing one weekly episode. Um, I'll be giving you some important or key trade uh, news updates, and I'll do a short, deeper dive into one particular topic. So hopefully you found the news update useful and practical. Again, I'm going to try to put these links um, to the sources if you're interested um, into the show notes. Um, if I'm not able to do that successfully or as quickly as you'd like, um, do feel free to email me and I'm happy to share the links. Um, the second thing is, um, do, let me know what you think of the, the discussion on trade deficits and customs value rules. Um, you, know, you know, maybe you don't think it's as important as I do, but I really think that the conversation around the trade deficit, particularly when it comes to exports from China into the U.S., are not always, you know, accurate or, or entirely honest. And if we're, if we're really looking at value add, you know, we have to understand that um, those imports from China really facilitate a much, much more valuable business here in the United States that wouldn't really effectively function or, or, or exceed um, you know, the current business volumes without it. I mean, so I've made an analogy in the past that the U.S.-China trade war is a bit like using your child's body to smash a cockroach. So we're taking something of huge value like high-tech design and R&D and things like that and trying to swat at low-value-add supply chain activities and crying foul and trying to bring those back to the U.S. I just think, um, you know, that that's not based on, on an accurate understanding of the trade uh, scenario. It's not really economically truthful either to really represent what's happening um, you know, from a value add standpoint at different points in the supply chain. And you know, frankly, I don't think that um, that's gonna be a path to success for the US to bring all those jobs back home. One has to consider how much of the, of the consumer retail and service economy is really fueled by the ability to outsource on a low cost basis that lower value add activity. Um, you know, of course, I would argue that that really facilitates the high value add jobs 
uh, plus the retail sales and, and service sector jobs that we talked about on the right-hand side of that curve. So hopefully this has been enlightening for you and um, you know, happy to have your comments and please let me know. I can try to improve these going forward. Thank you.